asking you when you know the Lord's Prayer by heart, my bigger question to you is, do you pray the Lord's Prayer with your heart? Do you think about the words of the Lord's Prayer when you pray? Or do you just repeat the words? See, I think that's the key. When Jesus was preaching to all of his disciples on the side of that mountain, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon of all time. When he was speaking to them, it came to this, we, see, we, we mark it down as Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And Jesus said to them, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now when Jesus called them hypocrites, the better translation is really actor. That's really the the understanding of that word in the Greek. It's an actor. These people loved the stage. They loved to get up on a pedestal in front of everyone and perform their very pious prayers. They love to just speak out and everyone to look at them and say, wow, you're so holy that you can pray like that. I joke with a pastor friend of mine when we get together and have a meal together, we always kind of joke back and forth and say, well, you pray, brother, you're the most holy. It's just a kind of kidding back and forth. I remember this one time, I think I kind of experienced this um, sort of... uh, grandstanding, if you will, of, of praying. I was at a pastor's conference, and there were um, a lot of good and godly men there, and, and I enjoyed that time spending with other pastors. And it was at a church where the pastor was, um, well, he had a large church, and he was very polished. He had been there for a lot of years. And we came to this time of prayer where everyone had an opportunity to pray if they wanted to, and some people had prayed, and then this pastor kind of got up there and And he started praying, and man, was he eloquent with his words. And he prayed big, fancy words when he prayed. And when he got done several minutes later, we all thought to ourselves, at least I thought to myself, you know, he offered, does anybody else want to pray? And I'm like, no, I'm good, man. (laughs) You covered it all. I don't want to follow that. You know, but you just kind of wonder, was it for show, or was it really, truly from the heart? And I feel like that's what Jesus had observed. You know, for 18 years, from age 12 to 30, as he kind of watched and waited for his mission to start, his three-and-a-half-year ministry to start, I'm sure he saw this happen all the time, that these people would get up and be like hypocrites, like actors, and perform these prayers. And I just don't want you ever to feel like you have to pray like me, or pray like the people on the prayer team, or pray like, like anyone I don't think God hears our prayers when we just pray these big, fancy words. I think God hears our prayers when we pray sincerely from our heart. You see, I love hearing people pray, especially when they're newer Christians, because they're just pouring out their heart to God. It doesn't really matter if you mess up the words when you pray. It doesn't matter if there's that awkward silence when you pray. It doesn't matter if you repeat yourself when you pray, because if you pray from the heart, God knows And he hears that prayer. Jesus said a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 7, he said, ask, and you will, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And I want more than anything for all of us 
to pray like Jesus. I want us to pray, ask, and God gives it to us. I want us to seek and God shows it to us. I want us to knock and it's opened up to us. I want us to pray like Jesus. I want you to have a place where you can go and be alone with God and get close to him. I want you to have um, a time of prayer where you just pour out your heart, just like we sang this morning. I want you to have a, a, a prayer life where you totally depend on God. and You don't trust in anything else but God. And I want you to know, and I hope you see this morning, that when you pray and fast, that that shows your sincerity. That shows you are serious and you are trusting in God. Amen? Amen. Let's start with me praying for us all to, to hear this with our hearts. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing you're an awesome and holy God. There is no God like you. And I pray this morning that we hear your words, that we would hear them in our heart, in our mind, our soul, everything within us. That, Lord, we didn't, wouldn't just be informed this morning, but this would change us. This would transform us. And that we could be more like you. That we could pray like your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that, that we would just, just bow down before you. Just let everything else that's going on in our life today, all the stress that we have, all of the awkwardness, all of the things going on that we're not comfortable with in life, all the challenges that we have, I pray, Father, that we could just set them down at the foot of your cross, that we could trust in you and just depend on you. God, we know that coming to church is not going to make everything better, that we are going to have to go back out into this world and we know that we're going to have our struggles. But God, why would we want to do that alone when we have you? Let us have the faith. Let us sit in the the chair, as Diedrich mentioned earlier, of faith and just trust in you. In Jesus' name. And everyone said? And everyone said? All right. Thank you. I need encouragement, as we all do. Every once in a while, someone will ask me, how do I posture for prayer? You know, do I, do I fold my hands when I pray? Do I hold my hands up in the air when I pray? Um, do I bow my head when I pray? Can I walk around when I pray? You ever wonder that question, like how does, you know, what's right? What is God like? The answer is all of the above. He doesn't really care what you do. He cares about your heart. He cares about the posture of your heart. What is your heart? Where is it at? Jesus said this in Matthew 6, verses 6 through 8. He said, when you pray, he said, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. Which is total contrast to what they had watched, right? They had known, they stand on the street corners. I mean, don't worry. You're not going to drive down 10 and Harper and see Pastor Matt standing on the corner in front of Bell Tire praying, all right? I'm not going to do that. Okay, because right here it says, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And then he says, when you pray, also don't heap up these empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard by their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Don't beat around the bush. Get right to the point. So I wanted to just talk about that a little bit. What, what does it mean to have a place where you can be alone with God? We've heard it said, uh, it's a prayer closet. Some people have a prayer closet. If you ever saw the movie, The War Room, um, what a great movie on prayer. All I can say is, 
Go get that movie and watch it if you want to learn how to pray. Um, the War Room was awesome. It was a place of, of getting alone with God. If you read the Gospel of Luke, you see that Jesus would often get away from the busyness of life and he would go and pray alone. Oftentimes, first thing in the morning, he would be out there praying by himself with God. It's just you and God, you can pour out your heart to him. You can just let him know what's on your mind. You may have seen the movie The Apostle. It starred Robert Duvall. He was a pastor. It's an older movie, but there's a scene in the movie that I really like because Robert Duvall had just experienced, well, the, the actor, and the, he's acting, the, the, the person he's portraying, the pastor, had just experienced just a, uh, an awful thing you know, that would happen to anyone. But his wife had committed, had an affair with the youth pastor. All right, so it's just going to, you know, the church is just going to split like crazy and everybody, you know, it's a terrible thing that happens in churches sometimes and because people are people and we're sinners and, um, you know, um, it's just, a, it was a mess, right? So here he is in the scene in the movie and he's mad. He's mad. So he goes to his, his mother's house and he's up in his old room and he's praying. And when he's praying, he's yelling, man. He's, he's mad, he's angry, he's frustrated. And the neighbors call, and they say, what the H-E double hockey sticks is going on over there? And the mom smiles, and she says, my boy is praying. <laughs> She's proud that her boy is praying. You know what? Sometimes when you pour out your heart to God, you're going to be angry, frustrated, mad, and you might need to scream into a pillow so the neighbors don't call. But sometimes you might be jumping up and down for joy. You might be so excited and happy of what God is doing, and that's how you pray. When we pray, it's a time to show your feelings for God. You just, whatever you are feeling, you pray. I just caution you, though, don't blame God all right, if, if, if you're mad about your situation, because Job did that, and if you ever read Job, all right, you know that Job was, uh, was um, taken out back by the woodshed, as they say, and, uh, but God is gracious and, and forgiving, and um, you don't need to question God, but he's full of grace. Sometimes we just don't understand. We don't see the big picture of that God. As a matter of fact, I was just reading in the book of Acts uh, this morning, as I just kind of read my own time, and there was a time when Paul uh, was arrested. After he had done a, a couple mission uh, trips around, he had gotten arrested. And it's the dumbest thing. Like, he gets put in jail, and because of the situation where these uh, Jewish people, uh, his people wanted to um, kill him because they, were, you know, they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, and they were, he had to stay in jail for like two years. And we think to ourselves, like, that's, like, it was just a silly thing that he had to stay in jail for two years. He could have been out on the mission field. But you know what God showed me in that? He said, you know what? Paul was in jail for two years. He was in a house arrest situation. And in that time, he wrote some of the letters that we have in the Bible. The letters to Philippi and the letters to, you know, Corinth and that. We wouldn't have what we have today if Paul didn't get arrested and spend two years in jail. Isn't that interesting? So sometimes we look at our situation, we say, this sucks, I don't like this, why am I in this situation? But you know what? God's got a big plan, right? And sometimes we just need to say, okay, God, I trust you. 
Ah, sorry, I got off track there, but you know, I just wanted to share that. I think that makes a lot of sense, I hope. Jesus said, don't worry about the words you say when you pray. Just get to the point. God knows what you need. And he taught him how to pray. And uh, you know, many of you know this, um, this, this passage uh, in the Bible, the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's five verses, and I, I hesitate to start reading it, Our Father who art in heaven, because when I start saying that, some of you start salivating like Pavlov's dogs, uh, because it's a conditioned response. You know, you may have grown up in a church in which they said that prayer so many times that you hear it and you just start saying it. So I'm not going to read all five at a time. I'm going to read one at a time, and I'm going to talk about it because I really believe, I truly believe, that Jesus meant this as a prayer, uh, as a model for prayer, not so much for us to recite. Not that I, I, I think it's a problem if we recite it, I just think that it, we need to think about the words we're saying. Okay, so the first thing that Jesus said is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now I'm using the English Standard Version, that translation of the Bible, and uh, some other translations are different, as you'll see, um, just slightly different in how we translate them into English. But you'll notice throughout the Bible that when people pray, they always start off, with hallowing God's name. Now the word hollow, okay, is the opposite of that would be profanity. So you either profane, right, say the Lord's name in vain, as they say, or you hollow his name. You exalt his name. You adore God when you pray. And personally, I think we should always begin our prayers with exalting God, adoring him, knowing who he is. I mean, who are you talking to? When you pray, get that right first. Know who you're talking to. When I pray, I like to be outside because I like to experience God's creation. It always brings to mind Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. You can't watch, I can't watch a sunrise or a sunset and not start praying. Because God has created this beautiful place that we live in. And that's how I start prayer, and I think you should think about that when you pray. If you want to know how to pray like Jesus, you start off by, by exalting God's name, by hollowing his name. And then Jesus said, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think it's important that we be mindful always when we pray that Jesus is coming back, right? And, and, and the, 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 what's happening in heaven will be happening on earth in his millennial reign, in his when his kingdom comes on this earth. Until then, we trust his perfect plan. We see things like a rainbow, and we know, yeah, God has made promises. And we, and we know that he... I love Ephesians 2.10, for God has prepared good works for us to walk in them. That's what we pray for. God, what have you got planned for me today? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to see you at work, God, and join in that work. Then verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And sure, God wants you to ask for the things that you need in life. I know we ask for what we want. (laughs) There's a difference between what we want and need. But God says, yeah, ask for what you need. He wants to give it to you. What father would give his son a stone when he asks for bread, right? 
But I think more so, we see Jesus teaching us to ask for spiritual bread, the Word of God. And I love Psalm 119 where it says, Thy word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Do you like stumbling about in the dark in the middle of the night? You ever stub your toe on the corner of the bed? Yeah, I don't like doing that. I want a lamp. I want a light so I can see where to go. And that's God's word, our daily bread. Verse 12, some forgive us. uh, It says, forgive us our debts. This is the translation the English Standard Version, and we also forgive our debtors. Now that word may be different than you usually say if you say the Lord's Prayer. You probably say, forgive us our trespasses. But here's what's interesting. Even if you look at Luke's Gospel, he uses a different word also. The word debt, the Greek word, is not the same as the uh, Greek word used for trespasses. And Luke uses a word for sin. And I don't want to confuse us, but I just want to bring to your attention that after the Lord's Prayer, verses 14 and 15, it says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. If you don't forgive others their trespasses, your Father won't forgive your trespasses. Jesus brings up forgiving twice in this little passage here. You should think about that. Forgiveness is important. Not only do we ask for forgiveness from God for our own sins, but we ask God to help us forgive others. The world would be a different place if we always forgave others. But we don't tend to do that. I think Jesus repeated this because forgiveness is really, really, really important. And get this. If you can't forgive others, then you don't really understand God's forgiveness for you. Just let it sink in because When we hold a grudge, right, when we hold a grudge against someone, you're basically saying, I don't want to forgive you. But God is saying, I've already forgiven you. How can we do that? How can we hold a grudge? How can we hold back from forgiving someone when God has forgiven us? A lot of time I think we need to spend in prayer on forgiveness, asking God to help us uh, forgive others. Then... Verse 13, the last verse, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You might remember Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he went to the cross, and he had his three disciples, his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John with him, and he told them that they should pray so they don't enter into temptation. Right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right? Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Later on, James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote one of the books of the Bible. And in there, he says, he talks about temptation. He says specifically that temptation is where the evil one will attack you. Where's the weakest link in a chain? That's the the place at which it will break, right? And Satan knows, the evil one knows, your weakest link. He knows your weakness. And that's where he's going to attack you. And when you fall to temptation, it leads to sin. And sin basically just destroys you. So he says, pray that you find a way out of temptation. And if you're a child of God, if you are, have the Holy Spirit in you, this is the beauty, beautiful part, I think, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13. I, I love this verse. 
I think it's something that you should probably memorize because we all have temptations. But if you know this, then you'll be mindful of it when you feel that temptation come upon you. And I'm talking like major temptation. Maybe it's the temptation to have an affair or the temptation to eat chocolate when you're not supposed to. I don't know what the extremes are for you or anywhere in between. But no temptation is overtaking you, it says, except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He doesn't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with every temptation, he provides a way of escape so that you can endure it. Isn't that a wonderful promise God has for you? That any temptation that you experience, God has provided a way out, that you can escape it. You don't have to let it become a sin in your life, that you can actually escape it. Now that's how the Lord's Prayer ends, with verse 13. It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's it, right? Did I miss something? See how close you've been paying attention. Some of you, well, I, I heard it, I heard it. And uh, somebody mentioned, depends on what church you grew up in. And honestly, it depends on what Bible translation that you read. Because some translations actually end with a little addition. The King James Version and the New King James Version say, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now we, sometimes when you say that prayer, depending on what church you grew up in, you might say forever and ever. But actually the translation doesn't say forever and ever, it just says forever. Amen. But why is it that some churches that we grew up in, I think it's actually a Protestant church, I think it's Lutheran, that that if you grew up in that church, you said at the end of your prayer, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, amen. But if you grew up in a Catholic church, you didn't say that ending. Why is that? Why do some translations have it and some don't? Well, I'll tell you what, the scribes who copied the New Testament, they didn't forget it. All right, they were meticulous. I told you that last week. Um, but the answer to it is not quite so simple. And uh, it's, it's actually a big debate amongst biblical scholars as to why that's, or should that be included in the Lord's Prayer, or should it not? And you can say amen that I won't explain the whole debate to you this morning. <laughs> well, here's what I want you to know. The evidence leans towards Jesus not actually saying, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The evidence suggests that it was added as a doxology, a a song, an ending to the song, because of another text called the Didache. The Didache, and some pronounce it didash, you say tomato, I say tomato. All right, I looked it up and heard it both ways, but it's spelled D-I-D-A-C-H-E. And that was actually a Christian manual used by many of the disciples in the first or the um, first few centuries, and it covered lots of subjects like the communion and baptism and the Lord's Prayer. And in the Didache, the Lord's Prayer ends with, "For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever." Amen. Now, an interesting quote I found from a Catholic scholar says this: "The irony of this debate." is that some Protestants 
sometimes accuse Catholics of not being literally faithful to sacred scripture and depending too much on tradition. Yet in this case, we see the Catholic Church has been faithful to the gospel text of the Lord's Prayer, and Protestant churches have added something of tradition. (laughs) They got us on that one, folks. All right? Because a lot of times, the Catholics have their traditions that aren't rooted necessarily in the Scripture. And here, the Catholics hold faithful to the original text. Now, if you've been saying the Lord's Prayer for a long time, and you've been using this ending to that prayer, you don't have to stop. It's okay. Because all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And King David said these words. I believe this is where the Didache got it from. King David said in 1 Chronicles 29.11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So it's in the word of God. So if you say that as part of your prayer, Jesus may have not have said it, King David may have said it, but all scripture is God-breathing. It's okay that you say it. And if this makes you feel sort of uneasy, If maybe you're bothered by this, like, wait a minute, I've been saying something that Jesus didn't actually say? Well, maybe that is cause for just a time of reflection or a time of prayer to say, hey, wait a minute, am I about the words or am I about what's coming out of my heart? And I think it's a time where you can pray and and ask God to check your heart and say, "Am am I doing this for the right reasons? I love the Lord's Prayer. As I said, every verse launches me into praying from the heart. And my personal prayers, when I pray to God, I try to rest my um, prayers on the promises of God's Word. So they just take me all throughout Scripture as I pray. And I love praying through the Psalms. I love praying through Scripture. Just reading a verse and praying. Reading another verse and praying. Reading another verse and praying. So you can read the Lord's Prayer. You can pray after each verse. And if you want to say, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, amen, or you want to just say forever, amen, you go ahead and say that, because King David said that too. Amen? Amen. The most important thing is you don't pray like hypocrites. You don't just say words. You mean them. God knows if you're praying sincerely. And if you want to kick it up a notch, as I think Emerald said, the famous cook, you should fast and pray. How many of you have fasted and prayed before? How many of you would like to know what fasting means? You've never heard about it before. Okay, good. Some of you have asked, like, what's fasting all about? Well, today's your blessed day. Not your lucky day. God's in charge. We know we don't believe in luck, right? Jesus said this right after prayer. He said, verse 16, chapter 6, when you fast... People always point this out. Jesus doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. Do not look gloomy like those hypocrites. They disfigure their faces and their fasting may, so their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but only by your Father who is in secret, and he 
who sees in secret will reward you. So why look gloomy when you fast? You know, I mean, other than, yeah, you might feel some stomach, you know, like, oh man, I'm hungry. But why look so gloomy? Well, in the Old Testament, fasting was, was kind of a mournful experience because people were in trouble when they fasted. Like, they were in serious trouble, like dire straits, like we're, we're facing, like, our, you know, destruction. And so it's almost like they're at a funeral when they fast. And in this day, Jesus noticed that they had sort of started this tradition of fasting twice, actually, I think, during the week. Yet, Jewish people are only supposed to fast one time a year, the Day of Atonement. Yet they had kind of adopted this tradition, the Pharisees, those really religious folks. And they would go around fasting, and they would look all pitiful, you know, and sad. And people would say, you know, what, what, what's wrong? What, what do you do? Are you fasting? You know, like, because, you know, are you holy and, and fasting? Do me a favor. Everyone make, if you got your mask, you just pull it down for a second. But everyone make your saddest face. Just let me see your most pitiful, sad face. Oh, my. You guys are pitiful. Are you fasting? Oh, you're so holy. You're so holy for fasting. And you know what? If you feel proud, then you just got your reward, Jesus said. God's not going to reward that. That's your reward. And I believe that those people that would go around fasting out of tradition, not for the right reasons, and people would say, oh, you look terrible, you... you you must be fasting, you're so holy, and they, they would feel good inside and maybe crack a little smile. And then they'd be, oh, wait, i gotta, I got to be sad. Pitiful. It's an act. They're hypocrites. That's what Jesus is pointing out. That's not how you fast. That's not why you fast. When we look at the Old Testament, they fasted because they needed God's help. And the word fast, by the way, is simply the word that means to cover your mouth. That's the word. The word means to cover your mouth. So in other words, don't eat. In fact, one of the psalmists wrote, 109, verse 24, he wrote, My knees are weak because of fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. Because you don't eat when you fast. Because you need God's help. Fasting throughout the whole Bible just shows that you need God's help so bad that you don't have time. You are not going to spend time preparing a meal or eating it. You are going to just pray. You need God's help now, and you are sincere about it. That's fasting and praying. I want to take you through just quickly a bunch of different times where people in the Old Testament and New fasted and prayed, so you can see it for yourself, and then we'll be finished. Fasted and prayed. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 3. King of Judah at the time. I love his name. Jehoshaphat. Poor kid got beat up in middle school, but King Jehoshaphat, all right, heard that an army was coming to overtake Judah. And so what did he do in response? Verse 3. He was afraid. He set his face to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And they all, they all fasted, the whole kingdom. We're done. If we don't get God's help, I wouldn't be eating either, right? I'd be praying. 
on my knees, nonstop. We need God to show up now. Ezra. Ezra is an interesting one, verses uh, 21 through 23, but i just show you 23. But Ezra proclaims a fast because at first, he, he, he said to the king at the time, he says, you know, um, we're good, you know, my God will protect us, we don't need anyone's help. But then I think, you know, he was one of those guys like, you know, tell you, don't lock your doors at night, you know, you don't need, you know, any extra security, God's in charge, God's going to protect you. you. You probably come across folks like that, you know, but then some others are like, no, you know what, I'm packing heat, you know, I'm going to protect myself. Um, and Ezra was like, wait a minute, I know God's got us, but he said in verse 23, but we fasted and implored our God for this. And he listened to our entreaty. Because he says it before that, I was ashamed to ask the king because I told him that God will have our back and God will protect us. But then he's like, oh man, we better fast and pray to make sure. <laughs> That's Ezra. Nehemiah, when he found out that Jerusalem had no walls of protection. Verse 4, I heard these words. I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then he goes on to say his prayer starts off like this. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He hallowed God's name. That's how he prayed. Esther, you know the story of Esther. The king had, had been tricked and he had put out an edict that, that all Jewish people would be killed. And Esther and Mordecai, verse 16, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. Me and the, uh, I and the, and the young women will do the same, and then I'll go to the king for help. If I perish, I perish. But they fasted and prayed. Like, this is serious stuff. Daniel 9.3, I turned my face to the Lord, and I was seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, like it was a funeral. I prayed to the Lord my God. I made confession, O Lord, the great and awesome God. You see, the idea of fasting and prayer is, this is serious. This is end of the road serious. God explains to Isaiah that fasting has to be done with a sincere heart. In fact, in Isaiah 58, the people cried out, why have we fasted and God, you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves? I put that in quotes because of what God says next. And you don't see it. God told them, you aren't humbling yourself. You're seeking your own pleasure. Like, they're fasting, but then they're doing their own thing. They're oppressing their workers. They're fighting with one another. This is all in Isaiah 58. And in Isaiah 58, verse 6, God says, this is the fast that I want. Loosen the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless into your house when you see someone without clothes, give them clothes. Don't hide from them. There's a sincerity of fasting and praying, seeking God's help, and it doesn't change in the New Testament. When you look at the New Testament, when baby Jesus was brought to the temple, there's a prophetess named Anna there. And if you do the math, you realize that Anna has been at that temple for almost 60 years, fasting and praying Night and day. And what was she fasting and praying for? 
She was praying for the redemption of God's people. Asking God's help. What did Jesus do before he faced temptation? Verse 2 of chapter 4. He fasted and prayed for 40 days because he was preparing for the mission. Verses 2 and 3 of Acts chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They prayed and fasted because they were going out on mission for God. In the last one, verse 23 of 14, chapter 14 in Acts, when they appointed elders in every church, the leaders of the church, they did that with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord. Prayer and fasting before every big decision. Why do you fast and pray? Because it shows that you are sincere and you need God's help. Once a year, our family heads down to uh, Florida at Christmas time. We go to this one church that we like. They have um, a nice service that they have. And uh, I've noticed year after year in their program that they start off the year in January with three weeks of fasting and prayer. Three weeks of fasting and prayer because they want to honor God with whatever they do in their community and, and, and as, they, as they minister to people. and They just want God's direction. And so they start every year off with three weeks of fasting and prayer. Last year, we did one day of fasting and prayer. And I'm just saying to you, I think we should do more. And I hope you'll keep me accountable to that. I hope you'll keep the, el- the elders in this church, the leaders, accountable to that because I think we need to depend on God. I think that's how churches can get off track and start doing things for their own glory. And we need to be doing things for God's glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray not like the hypocrites. Let's pray and mean it.